So this morning I want to uh, continue with a second session exploring what we can call wise speech practice. Last time, last week, uh, I gave a kind of an introduction to speech practice. And how many of you were not here last time? And how many of you were here last time? And how many of you who are here gave some attention to speech practice during the week? Okay, great. So I want to hear some of that later, what you explored. How was it? <laughs> Revealing? <laughs> Revealing. Um, I think uh, I heard once Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan teacher, once said that self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> so we had exercises last time to develop tremendously improved self-knowledge about how we use speech. So, uh, so I'll do a brief review of what we covered last time on speech practice, which was especially to focus on two themes. One, the importance of speech practice. and to the foundational understandings that we get from the Buddhist tradition, the teachings of the Buddha on right speech or wise speech. And then I want to go, go further today and bring in really a second set of principles and practice related to um, wise speech. And uh, that will be particularly connected with mindfulness of speech, bringing in mindfulness. The, the theme that was focused on last time could be said to be focusing on the ethical dimensions of speech and giving us ethical principles or guidelines. So I mentioned last time how speech practice is important for quite a variety of reasons, that it doesn't... Uh, take too much reflection to see that our speech practice or our speech can cause potentially um, tremendous harm individually or when it occurs in a collective situation like between nations. Um, unwise words can spark hostile conflicts. And similarly, sometimes unwise words coupled maybe with unwise listening one or the other or both, can lead to um, difficulties or breakdowns in relationships. And also that speech is a tremendous resource for healing, for understanding, for deepening of communion with others. And it's this energy that really is one of the main ways that we um, express ourselves, express our lives in the world. It's this really kind of magical energy of speech that um, other species don't have in the same ways. Even though they have, uh, I think, uh, as really we lear have learned partly through science or through uh, recovery of indigenous traditions that other animals often... Um, maybe have their own speech practice, <laughs> have their own ways of speaking, communicating, using language. 
So it's this very powerful energy in our lives. And I've also emphasized how if we're interested in having our daily lives really be locations for spiritual practice, speech is, at, is in some ways at the center of it. Because we're mo- many or most of us are prob- maybe speaking more than we're silent. Our meditation time, for many of us, if we're lucky, might be what? Half an hour or an hour a day? And how much time are we talking? You know, so our speech practice, if we're talking five hours or ten hours a day, suddenly we have a chance for conscious practice when we really uh, take some of what we're exploring here and bring it out there into everyday life. Not easy and challenging, but it's really, it's really a, a potential that's, that's there. And I think it's probably particularly evident and seen as valuable when we look to how it's very challenging to use wise and compassionate speech when we have difficulties or conflicts or when we're triggered. And so one of the main values of wise speech practice is to give us resources for the difficult times. For the difficult times individually or in relationships, in our workplaces, in our organizations. Because virtually all of us, when we're triggered or startled or surprised, don't immediately utter wise speech. <laughs> and <clears throat> with practice, that can come more readily. So it's, <clears throat> it's one of the obvious great benefits of giving attention in this area. Interestingly, we don't have that many guidelines and practices and principles, in my view, for wise speech from, for example, the Buddhist tradition. And I've been very interested in wise speech, and uh, particularly in the context of what we might call more relational practice, being with others, and also more engaged practice, you know, bringing the practice into people's work lives, lives of service, activism, and so forth. Speech practice becomes quite crucial. And in helping to explore what speech practice might mean, I've seen that there are very limited number of traditional resources, quite interesting. And I'm going to, in a moment, review the traditional resources briefly, because they're not that, it's basically the ethical guidelines, not that many. We don't have detailed handbooks of how we might approach speech. And what I'm hoping to do in these weeks is actually to give the equivalent of that. And there is, uh, Michelle in the, in the office asked me to mention, I think that there were some requests to see the book that I did a few years ago called The Engaged Spiritual Life, which has quite a few sections on speech practice. And I think, did she leave it out in the foyer? Mm-hmm. So it's available out there. So this is advertisement in the middle of talk. <laughs> we will now return. <laughs> we will now return to the main talk. <laughs> after this brief message. So, so we, don't, we don't have these guidelines, but it's possible to develop 
practices and principles in more depth. And so part of what I'm offering is my, comes from my own explorations. And that being said, it's not, uh, I think what I'm offering is very much in the spirit of the traditional resources and traditional approach, but some of the specifics are more innovative and developed. They're pretty foundational, and you see it. I mean, they're basically very, very simple. So the um, traditional resources are expressed primarily in terms of what I've interpreted as four ethical guidelines for our speech. And we're invited to use those guidelines to really look carefully at how we speak. And those guidelines are expressed in a few different ways and with uh, different, uh, as it were, listings of the factors. But I've simplified them to be uh, expressed through a list of four principles or four ethical guidelines for speech. To be truthful, to be helpful, to come out of a warm heart, and to have a certain appropriateness of speech, which could mean good timing, it could mean the right situation, it can, can mean having a clear intention. I think on the handout I actually framed it a little differently. I, I framed it as clear intention, which uh, I think I would prefer actually to have it be appropriateness for that last category. But in any case, these, these are the four guidelines. I'll just say a, a word about each of them because I think initial speech practice is using these guidelines and taking an inventory of how we speak. That's really an initial practice and it's just looking and seeing. And This is where the uh, self-knowledge is 70% bad news sometimes comes in. That when we actually look at our speech practice it can be what? Humbling and sobering. Right? How many people had something like that experience? Yeah. That, what did you notice? That sometimes, sometimes not so truthful? Yeah? Big liar. <laughs> <laughs> Big liar. <laughs> yeah. Truthfulness wasn't nearly as much of a problem as is it helpful, is it yeah. kind? appropriate. Is it, so we may be very good with being truthful, but not so good on the other. That's when I uh, did my first sustained monitoring of my own practice. Um, um, I, I mentioned this last time, working with a group where we looked at these principles for four months, meeting, uh, meeting every two weeks. And uh, I found that I was better on some of these guidelines than on others. It's part of what we find. That I, I also found truthfulness was in better shape than coming out of a warm heart. <laughs> Especially when I found myself feeling busy or pressured by time, right? You know, I'd answer the phone and my main interest would to be, I found, was sometimes to, can I be efficient with this call so I can get to the others? That doesn't always leave room for, for the warm heart, right? So, um, so part of this is a real examination of um, just what's there. And I think we again have to take this inventory ideally in the spirit of just looking carefully, almost as if we were scientists, just to look and see what's there without uh, blaming ourselves for what we find. That's the whole spirit of meditation, is just to see what's there, to notice if we have some reactions or, or startled and so forth. So we 
have the guideline of truthfulness. Uh, sometimes said in, in the Mahayana tradition, it's said that truthfulness is the outward expression of a clear mind, of a clear and wise mind. It's also said that um, a bodhisattva or a being who's on a path to help others and to also refine one's own being, some of the other ethical guidelines can at certain times be modified or or even put in abeyance. But the uh, guideline of truthfulness is said to be one that one should never depart from. It has a fundamental quality. You know, and, and if we're not truthful to others, we have strong tendencies not to be truthful to ourselves, so it can lead to self-deception and so forth. And then there's that way that uh, one of the beauties of the traditional teachings is as it says that wise speech, appropriate speech, has to really follow all the guidelines together, not just one of them. And we can be truthful but not helpful or kind. I think we know that, right? We sometimes use, and or I should, I'll, I'll speak for myself, I sometimes use, or I've noticed myself using, being truthful as a weapon that can actually harm others, right? I think we know that most, I imagine most of us know that quite well. <laughs> that, and so the balance of these four factors is really, really crucial. Giving uh, the... Um, sense more that we integrate these and we have to look carefully and develop better because a lot of what happens when we look carefully at how we are with these guidelines is we find where we're maybe not blatantly harmful or blatantly not telling the truth but we find ourselves in an area where kind of in the middle area where we might be um, telling half-truths, exaggerating being mildly helpful, <laughs> and so forth, right? You got the idea. So that's a lot of what we find. We find that, that all, of the, all of our speech, what, gets uh, filtered through what my wants, desires, what I think should happen, my own, sometimes my personal stuff, right? It all gets filtered through that. So we work also with um, speech coming out of a, a kind heart. In the, another text uh, from the Buddha, it says, one avoids harsh language and abstains from it. One speaks such words as are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving such words as go to the heart, and are courteous, friendly, and agreeable to many. But as I mentioned last time, that quality of coming from the heart can and I think should coexist with being able to be quite firm and not um, refraining from saying things that are sometimes hard, right? And that's actually an art form to come from a loving heart and say, um, to speak um, in ways that might be difficult or challenging, right? Or to bring up something that needs attention. So this sense of speaking from the heart um, can go along with what I sometimes call tough metta. <laughs> like tough love, right? <laughs> so, and then there's the last category of appropriateness, the sense of good timing and 
Uh, it's also in, in the text, it's sometimes spoken about, the, tra the word translated would be gossip, which I think more refers to distracted thought. You know, I think that there's some gossip, I think I mentioned this last week, there's some so-called gossip that is really an important function of providing local news, <laughs> right? And the question really is, how much is this simply distracted speech that's just going on and on? And the reason traditionally that, that such speech was seen as problematic is that it would be very easy in such speech to turn to, to um, move into greed, hatred, and delusion. And I think that's the, the negative aspect of so-called gossip is that it could involve what backbiting and saying nasty things about parties not present and so forth. So um, that's an aspect of this last quality of speech to have appropriateness, non-distractedness, clear intention, good timing, and so forth. So that's a starting point, and we can work with those guidelines. I mentioned uh, last time that there are different ways to work with it. You can actually, as I've done, I think I still have them on my wall by my telephone, just put the guidelines there. And I, I mentioned how I'd sometimes just say the phrases before answering a phone. You know? Or can you could go through them for every email. <laughs> just sit there saying, truthful, helpful, kind, <laughs> kind, um, good timing. Because one of the problems of email, right, is that it's so impulsive, right? Yeah. The, you know, it's like, da 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 and often good timing uh, is not considered. And if Sylvia has a practice that anything that involves any charge in an email, she doesn't send it for a day. <coughs> That's really giving a lot of attention to the, the appropriateness criterion of wise speech. And so we can, we can work with it. We can work, you know, really work with it with email. You can, I mentioned how one student of mine with her teenage daughter she wrote the guidelines in her hand whenever there was a difficult conversation was and she would be looking at this right at the moment she was talking to her daughter. So, and I would use the guidelines going to meetings that would sometimes be challenging. I'd have the guidelines on the piece of paper in front of me. So you can be creative, you know. Put them on your dashboards of your car or something. I don't, you know, all sorts of possibilities. So, um, so that's, that's one whole... Uh, area of practice, working with the guidelines. A second related area that I want to bring in today is mindfulness with our speech. And this is something that I think that was implied traditionally or implicit traditionally, but never really, to my knowledge, unpacked. What does it mean to be mindful with speech? So I want to talk um, briefly now I think about, really about uh, two main ways that we can cultivate mindfulness in our speech. And, and we'll do a practice together in just a little while that will explore, um, explore that. So, first a few, just a few words about mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness is a quality that is really at the center of our practice. It's this capacity to be present-centered, to be directly or as directly as possible with experience. 
So it's to be with the lived experience of the body, of our emotions, of our noticing our thoughts, of our energy in our, in our bodies, in our being, with our senses, being able to be more directly with the sunsets, with the tree, with eating a meal and so forth. And so with mindfulness, that directness of experience means that part of what we study is how we're not always so directly with experience, how we have um, interpretations, commentaries, blamings, ideas, and so forth, which are, of course, all of those are important, but part of what we explore in mindfulness is we learn the difference much better. What is more direct experience? What is less direct experience? As I mentioned, we need interpretations. We need um, to have reflection. We need, obviously, we need thinking. But uh, we may need it less than we think, so to speak. <laughs> and part of, a uh, large part of what happens in meditation is we explore those balances. By staying more closely with our senses, especially. When I was first learning meditation, I could frame it as coming back to my senses, being with my senses much more, and not so much wrapped up in thinking. And that's a big discovery for most of us. You know, when we first meditate, oh my gosh, we are, I am so much in thinking. And so we, we cultivate that quality of mindfulness. Where we can, it also is the capacity actually to stay with experience, be present with it, and know what's happening. That's a quality of mindfulness. So there's some degree of stable mind concentration that's there. We can actually stay with what's happening. And we, we ultimately, I think also in mindfulness, there's a certain quality of warmth that ultimately our mindfulness is connected with our hearts, that our, our being present doesn't just have a purely cognitive quality of staying with experience, but it also has a more heart, heart-centered quality. I'll just read a short quotation from Joseph Goldstein about mindfulness. Mindfulness means being aware of what is happening in the present moment. It means noticing the flow of things. Whatever the object is, to notice it, to be aware of it, without grasping, which is greed, without condemning, which is hatred, without forgetting, which is delusion, just observing the flow, observing the process. Mindfulness brings the quality of poise, equilibrium, and balance to the mind, keeping it sharply focused. And so, to bring mindfulness to our speech, I want to talk about two areas. One of them is using the ethical guidelines as a spur, as it were, or as a um, catalyst for being mindful. So I can, in my daily life, if I'm working um, with these ethical guidelines to orient me, especially if I'm actively doing it, like I have the list of the guidelines in front of me and I answer the phone, I will much more likely start to, I can be mindful when I notice myself talking in a certain way. 
and I can ask myself, what's there? I'm not talking so truthfully. And I can ask, you know, I can do both in the moment and maybe after the fact, I, I can reflect. In the moment, if that's possible, I can say, okay, okay, Donald, what's going on? I'm not being so truthful. What's there? Oh, I'm anxious that this will happen. So I'm fudging it a little bit, right? I can look at that. Or I'm, I'm you know, um, uh, maybe like I mentioned, I'm not being so warm-hearted, maybe because I'm in a hurry or I want to be, I want to get things done. And I can notice that. I can notice I'm not so warm-hearted. I can say, okay, Donald, just relax. Come back to the present, you know. It'll get done. You'll be okay. <laughs> right? Or something like that. I can talk to myself like Sylvia does that a lot, right? Sylvia, I, I sometimes channel Sylvia, you know, the, she, the way she, she talks and sometimes, you know, says, oops, that wasn't such a good thing to say, was it? Darling. <laughs> so see, that's where mindfulness connects with metta, right? And, and no, it wasn't. I'm, I think I must be a little anxious. Oh, yeah, you are anxious. Well, well just, just relax. Be mindful. Breathe. Oh, oh yeah, that, that's better. You know, so we can talk to ourselves and be like our own guides to ourselves. And so we, but we can use these four guidelines in order to help us to see more clearly. They can be like uh, resources that help us direct attention when we find ourselves uh, in some ways going against them. And that's a really important way to use mindfulness. And we can actually, again, I think we can do it uh, in the moment as best if we can. Uh, That's not always so practical, right? But as, as we get better, we can actually be in a conversation noticing ourselves speaking and have some attention just go inwardly. Or, you know, we can use the technique that I sometimes describe of just taking a break. Like you're, you're at a meeting and you're getting really upset at something and your speech maybe isn't so good. And it's hard to be mindful in the moment because the meeting's happening. So that's when we take a bathroom break and do wise speech practice in the bathroom. And as I mentioned, it's a really good technique because it's socially extremely awkward for people to comment about how long you spent in the bathroom or how, how, long, how many times you've gone in the last two hours. <laughs> so It's actually a key, key spiritual practice, which, again, I'm, this isn't in the traditional text, but, but highly recommended, underutilized by most people. So, so we can we can use we can use mindfulness in, in all those ways. We can uh, we can just bring the mindfulness, and it can also be done later through reflection. We we might come out of a meeting and just say, "What was that about?" And it's very valuable just to say, "What was there for me?" I found myself exaggerating. What was there? And we can reflect. But it's really about bringing attention to any areas where we don't seem to be following the guidelines well. It's a great practice, and it's, um, it takes some clarity of intention to do that, right? We have to really maybe <clears throat> start our days by taking five minutes and setting the intention to use the guidelines. As I mentioned last time, using the guidelines is not difficult. Being mindful is not difficult. Remembering to be mindful is difficult. Remembering to use the guidelines is very difficult. But what when we actually remember, it's not particularly difficult. 
And so the remembering part of mindfulness, remembering to be mindful, is actually at the heart of what makes daily life more alive. So all, anything that helps us to remember is going to be useful. You know, wear some jewelry, mindfulness jewelry, right? Or uh, put, put up signs, you know, put things on your hand, you know, um, wear special mindfulness clothing. <laughs> we should sell them in the, in the bookstore, right? Mindfulness T-shirts, so you, you know, so you're sitting and you notice you have knee patches that say "Be mindful." <laughs> just, just being creative. Uh, I totally uncopyrighted. If someone's in need of right livelihood, run with the idea. Okay, by me. So, um, the second area. The second area of mindfulness I want to cover today, briefly, and I may do more next time, because I want to do an exercise with it. This is mindfulness in the midst of speech generally, and it means more having an inner awareness at the same time that we're speaking. This is more of an intermediate or advanced practice. It's not easy. Right now, as you're listening, to me, listen, as it were, more outwardly, and internally, just have some kind of light internal attention. It could be just to be aware of sensations of your, maybe, hand on the knee, something like that. Over time, as we practice, it's possible to be outwardly engaged and tracking inner experience. It's not easy. Again, I say it's not easy to do that. But this is a horizon of our speech practice, which is quite important. Because unless we're tracking internally as we're speaking, we may tend to be unautomatic. And so how can I have mindfulness at the same time that as I'm engaged in speech? And I'll do an exercise in a moment, but it's, it's, it's challenging to do that. It goes really against a lot of our conditioning. It's actually quite important to have that capacity in a way when I can be mindful of myself, my own experience, at the same time that I'm engaged. It doesn't have to be this heavy, self-conscious mindfulness, but just having some inner awareness, it actually lets me rest more in myself. We have strong tendencies, I think, in this culture to have our attention either be 100% outward or 100% inward. So we meditate, I'm inward. Okay, now I'm listening to a talk, outward. You know, or I'm uh, off somewhere. And I think there's one of, it's, it's very challenging, but I think quite important. What would it mean to have something like 50-50 attention? With some intention inward, or 30-70, or something like that. Some attention inward. What I find, in having worked with this practice for a number of years, it helps me actually to be much more in myself. Because what happens when our attention is 100% outward? It's very easy to lose yourself, not know what you're actually experiencing, not know what you're actually feeling. I think it's actually a metaphor for mature relationships in which we stay both in ourselves, have the capacity to be with the other, and maybe also have the capacity to be with the larger we, So we can, in a sense, this practice is a basis for grounding in both I 
you and we, which I think is quite fundamental psychologically for mature relationships. But I'll go into that more, more depth maybe next time. But I think this is quite significant to be able to do this. So I want to do a short practice just to give the flavor of this. And let's uh, do this with three steps. We'll eventually, uh, we'll do this with a partner. So if you could move in physical proximity to one person and uh, move, if you want to move your chair or just move spatially so you can be with one other person. And raise your hand if you don't have a partner. Okay, there's uh, right here. Anyone not have a partner at this point? Okay. So I want to first uh, introduce yourself. Then we'll do we'll do three steps here, and then we'll have then we'll be then we'll talk together about what we experienced. So the first step is to go inward. And I'd like you to just reflect for a minute or two, and you can close your eyes if that's helpful. Reflect about how you might develop further in your speech practice. What are one or two or three ways that you feel drawn to develop further in speech practice? each now have a chance to speak. The content will be as much of what you just reflected on as you'd like to share. It's fine to keep things um, just to yourself if that's um, important to you. But um, so the content, we'll have each person have about three minutes to speak and, and then we'll switch roles. There'll be a speaker and a listener. The listener will not speak. It's okay to, the, the speaker will speak about how you'd like to develop your speech practice, anything related to that. The listener will just listen. And it's fine to nod or say, <laughs> something like that, nonverbal, you know, and so forth. And, and then we'll switch roles. The aim of the practice, the intention, is to see if you, as a speaker, and as uh, a listener can keep, have some inner attention as you're speaking and as you're listening. As a listener, it's be a little easier because you don't have to say anything. And so as a listener, I'll invite you to track what's going on internally. Notice if you have any reactions. Notice if you have a thought, oh, that's a good idea. I should do that too, or something less complimentary. <laughs> possible. <laughs> and, uh, and then as a speaker, I'll invite you to speak, but try to keep at least a light inner attention. And this could mean, uh, it doesn't mean having to track everything that's going on inside. It could simply be having a light awareness of your body. Maybe just the hand 
on the knee, just the feeling of, of the uh, sitting on the chair or the cushion. So those are the, those are the instructions. Any questions about the instructions? Okay, pretty pretty clear. So um, let's, uh, for the sake of time, let's have the person with the um, shortest hair. <laughs> Go second. <laughs> okay. The person with the shortest hair will go second, so you should, if you need to, you know, get some measurement sticks or whatever. Um, so raise your hand if you're going first. Okay, should, there should be one in each group. <laughs> okay. Um, so in a moment, we'll start, but uh, I also want to just... Um, have maybe 15 seconds just to be with your intention to have inner and outer attention at the same time. Again, a little easier. So, so we'll go with the first person and I'll invite, uh, when my words end, there'll be 15 seconds of silence to set intentions and then I'll ring the bell to start. Okay. So let's set intentions for either one to have that the way you're going to combine inner and outer attention. Okay, about three minutes. Thank you. 
About 30 seconds more. First speaker can finish up, and we'll switch roles now. Speaker becomes listener, listener becomes speaker, and we'll again take about, uh, after I stop speaking, about 15 seconds just to set your intention. So as the speaker, it's to focus on the content of some ways you might like to develop in terms of wise speech and to keep some inner attention as you're speaking. Remember this is a, a training or an experiment. And as a listener you won't be speaking um, but you'll be listening carefully both uh, internally and externally. Listen to just track whatever might be going. So going on. So about 15 seconds now to set your intention followed by the bell and we can start then.
About 30 seconds more. finish up and thank your partner and let's come back to the whole group So this is a this is a a second mindfulness practice that uh, takes time and it's challenging. I want to just leave some time for any observations from the exercise or any questions uh, related to the talk, really. But maybe starting with observations from from the practice we did, please. Talking to a stranger is, for me, it's safe because it allows you to be uninhibited in a way that you're not with your family, loved ones, and friends. I felt like I can admit things to a stranger that I'm embarrassed to admit to a friend, but they're important admissions to myself. Yeah. Yeah, so so that's the way. It's uh, remarkable. We often... I've occasionally done exercises involving honest communication with, with people who didn't know each other. And they said, I had more intimacy there than I've had in 25 years of marriage. <laughs> mm. so, uh, which... Uh, which uh, I'll, I won't go further into that one, <laughs> but but the um, yeah, this is really so. This is really a training place in a few different dimensions, right? It's partly to we create a space where we can explore honestly certain contents in ways that we couldn't do so easily if there were all the usual histories and hooks and so forth, right? So. It is helpful to think that we're consciously working with a, a learning space, really. And then, you know, then there's the, also the other dimension of really working with the, this practice as well. Of how, how, how is it to combine inner and outer? And it does require that safety, because to actually uh, give inner attention when we're with others it requires some degree of feeling safe or safe enough or secure enough because it's like it's, um, especially in some settings, like a hundred, some, sometimes all of our attention is going just to kind of navigate the situation, right? So here we're actually learning that actually part of skillful 
navigation is to look to self. But it requires a kind of training in a pretty safe space to do that. You know, and, and maybe with a content area that doesn't, it's not too complicated. Yeah. Other, other observations, please. Um, in your talk, I was struck by you talking about the four guidelines and you were talking about the balance between them. Yeah. Which I thought was a wonderful idea, but I experience it as tension <laughs> yeah. between them. Yeah. And, and even the idea that there's another word that's lighter and yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe more flowing was, uh, could, could be possible, I guess. Right, right. Yeah, it can be experienced as, as a conflict or tension, you know, between my whatever, my being truthful and my being helpful or coming with warmth and so forth and yeah it's it's almost like these are you know you have a council of good advisors <laughs> and all of their guidance is good and yet it takes some creativity to bring them together that's so there is creativity that's required is how do i bring these together without them being a conflict and it's some you know what i've learned from working with the theme of conflict for example, and I've done some of that here, and some of you have heard that in, in teaching trainings on skillful work with conflict. Um, at the heart of the approach that I've, that I've worked with is the creativity of seeing if there's a way to, as it were, not have a conflict between X and Y in which I have to choose either X or Y, but is there a way that I can bring them together? And then sometimes that takes creativity because our usual mode might just to be truthful or just to have some way that we're heartfelt. So it can take like real sitting with it. Okay, what's really going to do this? And it may not be immediate. But, but just to know that the, uh, uh, one of the main persons I worked with who taught me about conflict, Johann Galtung, he said that the best peacemakers and mediators are artists because their minds are really flexible and creative. And that's really demanded when there are these tensions, you know. Like, so it's like sometimes we need to sit with it rather than immediate, okay. But it is, uh, it can be felt as a tension, but I think ultimately it can, can be also be uh, a creative integration. So it's a great question because they can feel intention sometimes, yeah. Any other observations on combining inner and outer? How many, how many found it accessible in this short exercise? Okay, great. It's something you can try, and it's, it can be really simple. It's like being at a meeting, and in the initial stages of learning, it might mean simply to have a, a light awareness of part of your body, and that's good enough. We're basically trying to break the monopoly of the mental. And even if we break it 10%, that's moving things. And so we can break it, we can, uh, I don't know if I could use less violent metaphor, but uh, we want to, um, we can break that monopoly, so to speak, simply by having a little bit of awareness of the knee. It can be really, and that's moving in this direction. You know, or it can be when you know, like you're at a meeting, and you know you don't have to say anything. Track yourself internally. It's kind of like we have that knowledge that lets us be safe, right? and develop the ability to both listen outwardly and inwardly. And the, the easiest places to train are when you know there are no demands on you. Yeah. Um, listen to the radio. 
this way, or television or something. You can listen to the talks. We often guide people to listen to Dharma talks to have that spirit of listen internally as well. Be with your body as you're hearing a talk. So we can all keep, start mentioning this at the beginning of the talks here. We can practice that way. But those are some of the easiest ways to practice where there's a safe situation in which you, there no, there's no demand on you to speak. But you can also try it in some of the situations which are initially uh, the less demanding ones. Less, you know, and then over time, with practice, you can bring it to the demanding ones. It can really be tremendously beneficial because it really, what it does, it starts taking us out of our automatic patterns because it starts bringing mindfulness into the situation. Please. I find that uh, focusing on the area that I have less practice in, like the appropriateness of the speech, is helpful in balancing the others out. Yeah. Because if I find myself in a hurry to say something or I'm just asking what my intention is, yeah. I think will be more helpful. So that's kind of the weak, weakest link. Right. And um, it helps. And that's, that's a way to practice for each of us. I think there, I have on one of the handouts a bunch of reflection questions. And that's one way to practice, like to say, what's my weakest link? Let me give attention there for the next week. You know, what I'll invite us to do is to choose one practice for the next week that you would like to do. It might be to work with the guidelines. It might be to do the inner-outer. Of course, you can do both. But usually, it's simpler just to do one. It might be to say, let me work with the weak link and give attention to that. It could be to say, let me really try to have some of the inner and outer at the same time. Or if we're newer here, it just might be to um, look generally at my speech practice. That's, that was, the, as it were, the um, investigation invited for this last week, was just to use the guidelines particularly to look at your speech and see what's, see what's there. Okay, maybe, maybe last one because of time. Yeah, please. Yeah. But I am angry, frustrated, and hurt. It seems like it's not okay to express that in my conversation. Yeah. Like I should have resolved all that and it's over here. Yeah. But I'm not always able to do that. And maybe sometimes I want that person to know I'm angry, frustrated, yeah. and hurt. Yeah, yeah. And how is that wise to tell them? Great. So, everyone hear the question? <laughs> it's about, in your name again, was? Laurel. Uh, Laurel, uh, unlike the rest of us, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a joke. <laughs> uh, uh, but, wonderful question about um, how to use wise speech when I feel angry frustrated and or hurt, okay? And that's actually uh, a question that's hard to answer really briefly. Uh, and it, can, it is a something that we'll focus on probably almost for a whole session here. Uh, but a quick answer would be um, we can use those guidelines. And what immediately comes to mind, particularly the last one, 
is this a good, is, it, is the context appropriate for me to express? So there are kind of a few, a few ways to unpack that. One of them is to use the ethical guidelines. Another way would be what are skillful ways of addressing anger, frustration, and hurt? And uh, what particular uses of language would facilitate that more than others? But the context is really going to be a big determining factor, you know. Um, and yes, uh, it, if we um, didn't speak unless we had resolved anger, frustration, and hurt, we'd be losing a lot of um, opportunities for skillful speech and um, so it's important to have that capacity. Some, sometimes it is valuable to just go deeper into something by oneself before speaking. So the question of appropriateness, good timing, when we have, when, let's say, when we have those kind of emotions, very important. And to ask, what's good timing here? What's, what's appropriate? And sometimes it might be appropriate for me to, as it were, process what's there a little bit more. And sometimes that's, that's not appropriate, or it's appropriate to do it right in the moment. But to really to ask the questions of context, uh, who, is the, who am I talking to? Will that person be able to hear me? Uh, am I, uh, so we have to really be cogniz- very cognizant of the context and who we're with, not just internal state, of course. I mean, think this is obvious, but just, just to say it can be helpful. And then there are skillful ways to use language in those situations. You know, in, in the retreat that I uh, co-taught that was over about nine days ago on mindfulness, wise speech, and nonviolent communication, we used particularly the discipline of nonviolent communication to use, to find a number of guidelines for using speech skillfully in those kind of situations. If I had to summarize them, I, I, I'll do this briefly now, and then another time we can really go into depth on this in, in a few weeks probably. Um, maybe, maybe two or three weeks. Um, first, it's very helpful to use language and speech in ways that don't put the other person on the defensive. A lot of that has, occurs by having what, using what could be called reflexive language, language that's talking about my own experience and not making so much assumptions about the other. So I can say, uh, I feel frustrated by what's happened rather than I feel frustrated because of what you did. Subtle language differences. Uh, when we say, I, I feel frustrated because of what you did, we'll tend to put the other person on the defensive. When we say, I feel frustrated by what happened, and then describe that more neutrally, that's not, as it were, blaming the other for my frustration. So, so that's going to be important to speak. Uh, again, the, a lot of this depends on context. and. Um, but generally, that, that's helpful. And to um, um, have a sense also of where the other person is at. This is where inner and outer mindfulness starts to be quite important. To know what I'm feeling, but also start to have a sense of what's the other one feeling. 
So it's a, can I be mindful and empathic at the same time? Not so easy. Most of us, when we're angry, frustrated, and what was the last one? Hurt. We mostly are almost entirely in our own experience, almost like trying just to take care of ourselves or something like that. And it's not typical that we will also be empathic in relation to the other, say, what's the other person feeling? That takes training. So I would say those kind of, those, that, those three things are starting point. Uh, look at appropriateness, context. Uh, be reflexive. Talk about one's own experience. Find ways of using language that doesn't set up a dichotomy of typically good me, bad you. And then uh, to help with that, work to develop uh, a sense, not empathy both towards self and towards other. So that's kind, that's kind of shorthand for it could be another you know, 30 minute talk. But that, those are important guidelines. So, okay, uh, but great question, thank you. So let's just sit quietly for about 30 seconds to finish. And thank, we've gone over a, little to- over a little time, I hope that's okay. And I'll, how many of you, now the people from Hawaii and Vermont will likely not be here next week, but um, how many of you would like, well, but you're welcome to do speech practice anyway. <laughs> how many of you would like to do speech practice for the next week? Okay. Um, okay. You saw who didn't raise their hands, you might not want to, <laughs> want to talk to them. <laughs> okay. No, just joking. Um, and, and so I'll invite you to just to be with what was helpful for, from the morning and set your intention for how you'd like to work with speech practice in the next, in the next uh, week. And again, my suggestion is just to take one core practice that you, that you focus on. It could be to just take a general inventory. Just try to look in a general way at how your speech is. It could be guided by those four ethical guidelines. Second practice could be to use the ethical guidelines to try to really be mindful of when um, it doesn't feel like I'm following the guidelines. And the third would be to work with this inner and outer practice at the same time in speech. And you may have some other ways that you could practice as well, but those are three main options. So we close by remembering, and it's very clear with the speech practice, that we do this practice not just for ourselves, but also for others. (coughs) And may the fruits of our time be felt uh, by others and out beyond these walls. May the ripples of our practice be helpful for others. And may the fruits of our time together be dedicated for the benefit and healing of all beings. <laughs>